135th year of the department being here. Um, so not long in Oxford terms, perhaps, but certainly in most other, by most other measures. Uh, the department has been here for, uh, for a long time, uh, uh, providing access to the research and scholarship of Oxford University. And I hope for, for those of you particularly who are coming here for the first time, you've had a chance to look around, you've seen some of the courses and qualifications that, uh, that we offer, and uh, hopefully you have found something that uh, catches your eye and uh, piques your interest. So, I have been asked to talk about uh, coalitions in British government. And what I want to do is to talk briefly uh, about some of the history of coalitions in British politics, both wartime and peacetime, and then suggest what sort of perspectives or warnings that that might provide for the current uh, Conservative, Liberal Democrat, Cameron, uh, Clegg uh, coalition. So let me start off first of all uh, by talking a little bit about the history of coalition government uh, in British politics and what I've called in my uh, lecture title uh, party games. And I'm, I'm sorry if any of you did turn up actually wanting party games. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Yeah. Um, it was against the background of a violent thunderstorm in uh, December 1852 that uh, Benjamin Disraeli declared, um, this too I know, that England does not love coalitions. And Disraeli, who we see here, uh, described as a self-made man who worshipped his maker, uh, continued, <laughs> a coalition has before this been successful, but coalitions, though successful, have always found this, that their triumph has been brief. Towards the end of his life, the liberal leader and prime minister, Herbert Asquith, wrote, Nothing is so demoralizing to the tone of public life or so belittling to the stature of public men as the atmosphere of a coalition. So the word coalition has always carried with it negative connotations, um, suggesting the sacrifice of or compromise of principles in order to secure political power. And this was uh, confirmed by the conservative, 19th century conservative uh, prime minister, Lord Derby, one of the lesser known uh, British prime ministers. But I give this to you as a bit of free information to exercise and display at uh, upcoming Christmas parties and things like that. You can ask the question, who was the first British statesman to become prime minister three times? And the answer is this chap, Lord Derby who also happens to be the longest-serving party leader in modern British politics and led the Conservative Party for 22 years, but has uh, slipped from our gaze, our historical gaze. But in 1866, Lord Derby uh, said that a, co a government of coalition is one that understand, uh, we understand to be a government of men of different parties, in which each, to a greater or lesser extent, sacrifices his individual opinions for the purpose of obtaining united political strength. And we all know 
that it's always exceedingly repugnant to an Englishman to sacrifice his private opinions for expediency. So the idea of coalition was not getting a good press from uh, the Conservative Prime Minister, Lord Derby, uh, either. The word coalition actually enters English usage in the 17th century. Interestingly, um, first of all, in a religious context, denoting the, the coming together, the growing together, or the coalescence of different elements. And this, an example of this was the reference to God and humanity by becoming by coalition one nature in Christ. So it was originally a, 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 a religious term. By the uh, uh, 17th century, it's also become a word that's used in scientific discourse. And it becomes, in the 18th century, in addition, a political term, describing the combining of distinct parties without a, incorporation into one body. And it still carries negative connotations, uh, which were affirmed by the unhappy experience of the eight-month uh, Fox North Coalition of 1783. So that the word coalition, certainly in the 19th century, is a term more often used by hostile opponents rather to decry ministerial arrangements rather than a, a badge of honour, as it were. And certainly in the 19th century, a more principled and positive uh, description was that of a broad-based, or as it was uh, sometimes called, broad-bottomed, wonderful 18th century term, broad-bottomed uh, administration, meaning the coming together of politicians in the national interest and in support of the monarch. So, for example, we find William Pitt, the youngest ministry, after junction with the Portland Whigs, is described uh, or decried by uh, opponents as a, a coalition. We had the Ministry of All the Talents in 1806-1807, a similar combination of different parties. Uh, Lord Liverpool's government, uh, after the adherence of Grenmalites in 1822, uh, Canning's short-lived ministry in 1827, were all perceived in, in these terms. And likewise, uh, Lord Grey's great reform ministry of 1830-34, to containing Whigs and Huskinites, reformers and an ultra-Tory, uh, was interestingly, despite its, its very mixed political elements, not commonly referred to as a coalition, but again as a government brought together in the national interest, in this case to, in order to secure sort of necessary uh, reform of parliament. Now these very ambivalent, morally ambivalent, often overtly negative connotations of the notion of coalition resonated into the 20th century when uh, Ramsay MacDonald formed what was in effect a coalition in 1931. It was not badged as a coalition, but it was called a national government. This was the bringing together of uh, Labour, Conservative, Liberal politicians uh, together at a moment of severe economic crisis with the, uh, in the context of, of punch. And, uh, sorry, the economic crisis. And here you have punch in 1931 depicting Ramsay MacDonald as a master chemist who is expertly 
blending the elements of labor, liberalism, and conservatism into a, into a new uh, political compound. Less flatteringly, in the House of Commons in 1931, uh, Winston Churchill referred to Ramsay MacDonald as the boneless wonder. Um, but this election poster of, uh, for the national government in 1931 captures uh, the spirit of what was presented as a national government bringing all the team together behind the uh, national interest. And this was important and interesting because there had been just 10 years before uh, a previous experience of coalition government under Lloyd George, which had been rather lurid um, and at times rather tawdry uh, experience. And so had done little to displace the negative connotations of, of coalition government. In 1922, the Daily Mail had talked of the poison of coalition. Um, and Lloyd George at the same time was described by one critic as being a man uh, who couldn't see a belt without hitting below it. <laughs> so self-avowed coalition governments come together in a, in a variety of, of, of different circumstances. But what I want to do, first of all, I think, is to suggest to you that there are two basic types of coalition government. The first type is those coalition governments which are formed in the context of a national emergency, such as war, where they are seen as a temporary expedient in dire times. And good examples that immediately spring to mind of this, of course, are the Asquith, the Lloyd George coalitions of the First World War, and again, of course, the Churchill coalition of the Second World War. And I think probably one would want to put Ramsay MacDonald's national government, an effective coalition government, in that same category. So that, I think, is the first type of coalition government one can see looking back over the historical span. But there is a second kind of coalition government. And these are very interesting because these are coalition governments, I want to suggest to you, which um, portend or foreshadow rather fundamental realignments in the party structure. And so uh, uh, in those terms are rather sort of interesting events where we see the existing alignment of party uh, undergo rather dramatic and certainly far-reaching uh, change. Um, you know, temporary arrangements in this type of coalition cast a far longer shadow. And two examples of this kind of coalition I would point to are the Aberdeen Coalition of 1852-55 in the middle of the 19th century and uh, Lord Salisbury's government of 1895. So I'd like you to bear in mind these two basic categories of coalition government because I want to return to this when we begin to talk about uh, contemporary events. In the case of the Aberdeen Coalition, uh, which we see here, 
What we see with this coalition in 52 to 1855 is a foreshadowing of the formal foundation of the Liberal Party, which eventually then took place in 1859. This was uh, a coalition bringing together Whigs, Liberals, uh, a handful of Radicals, and uh, those who were known as Peelites following the Conservative Party split of 1846. And it was precisely this rich compound, this rich blend of political elements, which then coalesced in 1859 to form the great Victorian uh, Liberal Party. When formed, this Aberdeen cabinet was supposed to be, as it was described at the time, as a distillation of talent. This was bringing all the intelligence and experience of the cream of the crop of 1850s uh, politicians together. Although you have to contrast that with uh, Lord Palmerston's description, uh, who was a member of the cabinet in the unusual position of his Home Secretary, his description of the Prime Minister, Lord uh, Aberdeen, as an example of antiquated imbecility. Um, here you have Palmerston here, pointing at the map, and this is Aberdeen here, uh, staring, it seems, rather distractedly off into the middle distance. Um, this Aberdeen coalition, probably its major achievement, was Gladstone's landmark budget of 1853. <coughs> but interestingly, Gladstone, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer in Aberdeen's cabinet, never described the Aberdeen coalition as a coalition. Again, the reluctance to use that, that particular term. Gladstone always uh, referred to it as a mixed government, which he felt was slightly more uh, honorable uh, description. And at the time, he wrote, the formation of a mixed government was only warranted when ministers had a most thorough confidence in the honor, integrity, and fidelity of each other, when they were in agreement on all the great questions of the day, and when a great and palpable emergency of state called for it. Um, Gladstone always set the moral bar very, very high. And when you read that, you can have a certain sympathy for his opponent, Disraeli's comment, that uh, he didn't so much mind Gladstone having the ace of trumps up his sleeve, what really stuck in his throat was Gladstone's absolute conviction that it was God who had written it. Yet, this coalition, the Aberdeen coalition, didn't survive the mismanagement of the Crimean War, charge of the Light Brigade, etc. And in particular, the graphic accounts which appeared in the Times, uh, written by W.H. Russell, of the disease ravaging uh, British troops and French and other allied troops in the Crimea, and the incompetence of officers and general military logistics in the, in the Crimean War. Um, so interestingly, coalitions are often the uh, political consequence of war. But in this particular case, uh, the Aberdeen coalition was actually brought down by war. 
and amid the scandal associated with uh, Crimean mismanagement, uh, was ejected from office in 1855. But, as I say, I think the true political significance of the Aberdeen Coalition was it was a coalition that foreshadowed the realignment of party politics just four years later and the uh, establishment of the Liberal Party, which was going to go on and dominate so much of 19th uh, century uh, politics. If we then turn our attention to uh, a peacetime coalition, 1895, Lord Salisbury, the uh, Conservative Party leader here, I rather like this photograph, it does it very well, I think, sort of Salisbury's world-weary Tory scepticism about what's going on out there, um, a very intelligent uh, scepticism one should also add as well. Um, but again, Salisbury's 1895 coalition uh, marked uh, a process of party realignment. In this case, in the mid-1890s, it was the merger of the Conservative Party with the Liberal Unionists and the creation of then what became subsequently the Conservative Unionist Party. Um, again, a coalition presaging, portending the restructuring of, of party alignments. By 1945, if we fast forward a bit, British politics was coming to be seen as a contest between two major parties, Conservative on one side and Labour on the other. And after 1945, this binary structure, this two-party system, was seen as, as being natural, as it were, the natural mould of British politics. And I don't think it's any accident that it's during the 1950s and the 1960s, precisely at this time when you have this clear two-party alignment between Conservatives and Labour, that uh, political science as an academic discipline establishes itself in this country and takes the shape of contemporary politics as it were as the model or the natural form of, of, of British uh, politics. So that the paradigm, the model of British politics after 1945 became the alteration in government of two rigidly aligned and ideologically united parties. And that, of course, was the pattern that we saw during the 40s, the 50s, uh, into the 70s, into the 80s. This then brings us to uh, the events of May 2010, when the first coalition government of the 21st century was formed represented here, of course, by Cameron and Clay. This is the uh, announcement of the coalition after a weekend of intense private negotiation and rushing backwards and forwards in the Rose Garden at, uh, at uh, 10 Downing Street. Um, and one can pause for a moment perhaps and just look at the expressions on their respective faces and try and decipher what is going on uh, in, in, in their minds. 
uh, for a rather more uh, sceptical contemporary comment on, on the event, we've got uh, a private eye uh, front cover here, uh, which speaks for itself. So, what does the history of peacetime coalitions in British government reveal to us? Uh, or, if you like, what are the uh, warnings that history offers to the conservative liberal democrat uh, enterprise? At this point, I want to suggest to you there are three. And, uh, rather presumptuously, I'm going to give you these as the three Hawkins rules about coalition government in British politics. These are the guarantee to exam success. <laughs> um, Hawkins rule number one. That in any coalition, the prospect of the next election hangs over them like the sword of damage. The convention of cabinet collective responsibility in government requires, of course, agreement, a unified public face on policy and decisions. But either close to or a little bit further <coughs> away, there exists the uh, inevitability of a general election. And the uh, challenging question at that point is, how do the partners of the coalition campaign? Do you, at that point, as it were, break ranks and campaign as separate parties, which of necessity implies some degree of criticism of policies which you may have been associated with by virtue of the coalition? that you've been part of, or do you try and fight on some combined coalition ticket? Um, the Lloyd George Peacetime Coalition in 1918 tried to do the latter with what became known as the coupon election, where there was a, a, a coalition presentation to the, to, the, to the electorate. But, you know, this issue, uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle how are we going to behave? How are we going to stand on our record? And how are we going to, perhaps even more importantly, distinguish ourselves as political parties from each other, having been in this marriage of coalition for the last four or five years? Um, as I say, I think the prospect of the next election hangs over all coalitions, like the sword of Damocles. So that's Hawkins' rule number one. Hawkins rule number two, that exiting gracefully from coalitions is much harder than entering into them. Um, and here, you'll forgive me, I evoke a, 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 a parallel. It seems to me it's rather like marriage, where the elation of the nuptial celebrations can give way to the bitterness and recrimination of divorce. And 
how uh, how you end the relationship is extraordinarily difficult and challenging. In part, of course, precisely because of what I was saying about the prospect of having to fight an election um, in competition with each other. So, Hawking's rule number two, exiting coalitions gracefully is much harder than entering into them. And then finally, Hawking's rule number three. This is the rule that coalitions operate very differently and the dynamics of coalition are very different depending on which level of politics you're looking at. Whether you're looking, at, for example, at the cabinet and government or whether you're looking at parliament or whether you're looking at the constituencies and the electorate. And as an extension of Hawking's rule number three, I suggest that the further you move away from the center of power, Downing Street, the cabinet, uh, and the front bench, the further you move from that center of uh, ministerial power, the harder it is to maintain harmonious coalition relations. So there's a warning at this point, and the warning is this, that retribution seeps in from the grassroots. Um, and it's in the constituencies and amongst the electorate that harmonious coalitions are hardest to, to, to maintain. So those I want to suggest to you are the three Hawkins rules, particularly for peacetime coalitions. Um, and if I'm suggesting that from the experience of previous uh, coalition governments in peacetime in Britain, it then leads us on to think a bit about, okay, so what, what are the warnings uh, 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 that these emphasize or underline uh, for the Cameron, Cameron Clay coalition? I think the three Hawkins rules apply and indeed, I think the weight of these warnings is emphasized, is strengthened by some of the very specific circumstances surrounding the formation of the conservative liberal Democrat Cameron Clegg coalition in May 2010. I seem to be working in threes, so I will continue to work in threes. Let me suggest to you that there are three things about the uh, as I say, specific circumstances in which the current British coalition was formed, which underline the warnings inherent within the three Hawkins rules. First thing I would point to is that previous peacetime coalition governments, <coughs> those, for example, in 1895, 1918, and 1931, were formed before general elections. They were endorsed by the electorate in the, the subsequent general election. Very different circumstances in May 2010. The three major parties campaigned as separate parties with separate manifestos. There was no explicit programmatic commitment to coalition 
Although, as we all know, discussion of coalition and the possibility, the requirement for coalition sometimes was in the air in a rather, at that point, unformed, slightly nebulous uh, way. And commentators and voters, all of us, were in a sense trying to guess what sort of coalition government would emerge uh, in the event of a hung parliament. And many guess wrong. You know, it's interesting to go back and read The Guardian, for example, uh, <coughs> during the uh, general election, which was recommending uh, its readers uh, place a Liberal Democrat vote in order to create what they were describing as a progressive coalition of the left. So in that sense, compared to earlier peacetime coalitions, you could say the Cameron-Clegg coalition lacks the legitimacy of an electoral mandate. We did not vote for a Liberal Democrat Conservative coalition. Um, that was not on, on the agenda. The coalition did not issue from party manifestos, but rather, one could argue, from intense private negotiation. Um, and as I say, we remember uh, those events uh, leading up to the announcement in the Rose Garden. Second thing I would point to about the circumstances of the current uh, coalition government that it's the only peacetime coalition to result from a hung parliament. If you look at 1895, 1918, 1931, as we have been, the Conservatives, if they'd wished to do so, could have governed without the support of any other party. In 2010, this was not the case. So you could argue that in this particular sense. The coalition uh, that was formed in 2010 was a coalition of political necessity. Um, <clears throat> you know, this is uh, the rather graphic, wonderful cartoon of the day after the vote. Uh, <clears throat> Gordon Brown looking in a very bad and bruised state. <laughs> but, you know, Interestingly, neither of the other two leaders are looking terrific either. Um, and this was the, 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 the hung uh, parliament. Um, I've got this. Yes, this is the cartoon I thought of when I was uh, thinking about this point about uh, the current coalition being a coalition of political necessity. Clinging to each other in the uh, what looks like a rather precipitous descent in a uh, failing parachute. Um, the third uh, comment I'd make about the particular circumstances of the current coalition was again, if we look back at previous peacetime coalitions in 2010, as we know, it was the Liberal Democrat, Democratic Party as a whole which joined the Conservatives in coalition. 
If we again look back, 1895-1918-1931, uh, coalition was to some extent the outcome of liberal division. Um, but in 2010, the Liberal Democrats were a united party entering coalition as a whole. And for that reason, I think the historical warnings bear down on the current uh, coalition, and in particular the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, rather more gravely because it is the party as a whole which is engaged in this coalition rather than a section uh, of it. So what were the political trophies the Liberal Democrats, if we look at them for a moment, looked to on coalition government? Well, I think you know, one could argue there are at least three things that uh, they, they wanted. One was electoral reform, and a particular form of electoral reform was proposed, which of course was uh, rejected in a national um, uh, referendum. Second thing that uh, they held out as uh, being very important was reform of the House of Lords, that long-running political saga, <coughs> which has now been going on for, uh, what, nearly 14, 15 years, having done away, quite understandably, with the hereditary second chamber, which looks hugely anachronistic at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, it seems to me that the difficulty was that the hereditary second chamber was done away with, but there was no agreement or broad consensus about what to replace it with. And that was the problem. So in a sense, the, the train left the station, but we had no idea what the destination was. And it's generated a sort of political deadlock, because if you do away with a hereditary second chamber on the basis of democratic accountability, you have to replace it with something which is democratically accountable, but that also requires the House of Commons to concede some degree of political power influence to the second chamber, and it's at that point that things all become very difficult. Um, so reform of the House of Lords has, has, has rumbled on. And the third element was, of course, reform of public services. Um, goodness knows there's been much debate about that, and uh, probably you know, fair to say that uh, uh, the uh, jury is, is still out on that score. So I think those are, uh, as I say, three particular aspects of the circumstances in which the Cameron Clay Coalition came into existence, which are worth noting. And the consequence of those particular circumstances is, I think, to underscore the weight or bearing of the historical warnings about peacetime coalition in British politics, the three uh, Hawkins rules. Let me then as we uh, get to the end of the lecture, then go back to the beginning where I suggested to you that there were two basic types of coalition government in British politics. Now, if we were in a seminar, of course, it's at this point I said to you, okay, who can remember what the, <laughs> but I won't, <laughs> I won't uh, put us all through that. But, you know, as you remember, I mean, the, the, I suggested there were two types one was the coalition, which was seen as a temporary expedient in a moment of dire national emergency, often war or economic crisis. 
or it could be an episode portending or foreshadowing far-reaching party realignment. Now, if we take those two categories, that taxonomy of coalition government, the interesting question then becomes, so what sort of coalition are we looking at? And one could say, well, of course, it started off as the first in the context of the dire economic crisis of 2010 and the financial banking crisis from 2008 on. So it was a coalition government formed in response to dire national emergency with politicians coming together in the national interest. But the longer the coalition goes on for, I'm beginning to think that it's also looking like an example of the second kind of coalition, where it presages or foreshadows perhaps some rather far-reaching realignments or restructuring of the party system. Um, and I say this for a number of reasons. One general point to make, of course, is that we have seen over the last 20 years, if not longer, uh, a diminishing uh, commitment by the electorate to rigid party allegiances. If you like, the, the traditional tribal allegiances, if we describe them as that of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, have begun to break down for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and one symptom of that, of course, is that party membership has declined dramatically uh, for the major uh, political parties. And other formerly more marginal political parties become rather more to the fore. So I think you know, that's part of the background, but I think there are other reasons for thinking that we're looking at a coalition which started off, as I say, an example of the first type of coalition, but perhaps is moving into an example of the second type of coalition. And it's, uh, I think, worth thinking about two things in that context. One is the uh, nature of liberal democratic support in 2010, and the second is the effect of coalition on conservative support. If you looked at liberal democratic uh, supporters and voters in 2010, you could say that they were divided into three groups, three elements. One were the party faithful, who had been uh, supportive of the Liberal Party and then the Liberal Democratic Party, and had long-standing affiliations and allegiances. The second element that one could see was uh, disaffected Labour voters who were switching to vote Liberal Democrat because they wished for uh, a, a moderate left of centre uh, government and of course uh, as with all governments that are in power for a long time there is the legacy and the baggage of the previous years and issues such as the Iraq War. Um, so, a second element in the Liberal Democratic support was, as I say, disaffected uh, Labour voters. And a, a third element, but much smaller, 
was a number of disaffected conservative voters, again, hoping for a sort of moderate centrist government. And I want to suggest to you that what we've seen over the last uh, three years or so is disillusionment amongst all three of those elements of liberal democratic support. You know, the party faithful have found themselves in uh, government with the conservatives, and there is uh, a questioning uh, among many faithful liberal democrat supporters about, okay, where are the ideals, where's the vision, where are the principles of the party and the sorts of things that multiple uh, Labour, disaffected Labour voters, uh, voted Liberal Democrat, hoping for a, a progressive left of centre coalition that actually ended up with Liberal Democrat Conservative coalition. So that strategic vote, sort of, as it turned out, backfired. Um, and then we come to the uh, disaffected Conservative voters, and just want to conclude with. Uh, thinking about for a moment what the effect of the coalition has been on, on the Conservatives. And again, what's interesting is, of course, the, um, the factionalization amongst Conservative support, the tensions I've already talked about under the terms of the Hawkins rules about <coughs> Conservative constituency activists questioning the policies and the certain sense of being distanced or alienated from, uh, from coalition uh, government, and of course the uh, rise uh, in voter support for UKIP as, in some ways, by, uh, to some degree, a measure of conservative disillusionment with the sort of policies uh, that David Cameron uh, is uh, introduced and represents, and for some conservative activists, the sense that perhaps David Cameron is not, is not a real conservative after all, he's a sort of centrist, moderate, um, and that the traditional values of the Conservative Party have, uh, have been uh, lost. Um, and that, of course, is part of the story behind the increasing support uh, for UKIP. Um, which uh, was feeling a lot more buoyant a few weeks ago until recently. Um, uh, of course, with uh, the UKIP, uh, MEP, they couldn't keep quiet and kept on uh, making all sorts of uh, outrageous comments. But nonetheless, you know, UKIP has come uh, more to the fore. All of these things, it suggests to me, is that we could, in actual fact, be looking at a coalition which has, as I say, moved from an example of the first kind of coalition into uh, an example of the second kind of coalition where it's foreshadowing some fairly far-reaching restructuring of the British party system and what form that would take is, is a hugely interesting, fascinating uh, speculation. Um, will the pattern of British politics look different after the next election than what it does look now or indeed looked like before 2010? If it does, of course, then that simply um, affirms uh, Disraeli's insight that uh, England does not love coalition. At that point, I will, uh, I will conclude.
So thank you all very, very much. For